Canon Press presents the weekly sermon from Christ Church, Moscow, Idaho. Copyright 2019. If you would like to find out more about Canon Press materials and products, please call 1-800-488-2034. For a complete list of our products or to order online, please visit our website at canonpress.com. Enjoy the sermon. And all God's people said, Amen. Let us worship the triune God. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And also to you. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Proclaim the good news of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his wonders among all peoples. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Almighty God, we are not here to go through the motions of religion. We are not here to check the religious or spiritual box. We are not here to add balance to our lives. We're not here to do something respectable in the eyes of the world. We're not here to make friends and keep up good impressions. We're not here to make a deal with you. We're not here to try to manipulate you or anyone else. We're not here under any kind of pretense, oh God. But God, we need you to lift us up to yourself. We need you to pour out your spirit and cause us to see you in truth by faith. We need you to turn our hearts toward you so that they will be turned. We do not put our trust in men, in our own wisdom, in our own words, or our thoughts. We cling to you. We hold fast to you. We are here trusting you to be our God, our only savior, our only hope, our only peace, our greatest joy. And so we worship you now, our Father, trusting in the goodness and name of Jesus Christ alone and in the power of the Holy Spirit, world without end, and amen. Amen. In that famous Christian calendar verse, Joshua is remembered for his courageous stand at the end of his life, proclaiming that he and his household would serve the Lord. But prior to doing that, in the same breath, he called out his contemporary Israelites for their idolatry. He urged them to choose between the Lord and the gods their fathers served in Egypt or the gods that they had begun to serve in the land of Canaan. This is really quite striking. Many of the people who had been delivered out of Egypt by the 10 plagues and through the sea brought Egyptian idols with them. And then, Having been led through the wilderness, fed by miraculous bread out of heaven for 40 years, and led by Joshua over the Jordan to conquer Canaan, including the miraculous destruction of Jericho, many of the same people had taken up Canaanite idols. And these, remember, were all the relatively good Israelites that God had not destroyed for their various rebellions. Paul wrote the Corinthians and said that these things were written down specifically for Christians who would be tempted to think that they were immune to idols. One way to think about these various idols would be the idols from before our conversion to Christ and the idols that we pick up after our conversion to Christ, the idols of Egypt and the idols of Canaan. An idol is anything that God made that we have tried to refashion as a means of getting some gift apart from God's blessing or design. So what might our idols be? Like the man tormented in the tombs, their name is Legion. How about the idol of respectability? The idols of being liked, having friends, being thought well of, success. Closely related to this would be the idols of comfort, finding your peace in a comfortable home, a comfortable job, a comfortable income level, clothing, health, or what about the idol of pleasure? The Israelites of old were not, not that much different than we are. They lusted for food and drink and sex, trying to find joy and peace in these things rather than the God of all joy and peace. Remember C.S. Lewis famously said that we are far too easily pleased with things like drink and sex. We're like a little kid who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because we cannot imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday at the sea. 
So as we prepare to confess our sins together, please turn to How Long, O Lord, Will You Forget on page 14. Amen. So as you're able, please kneel as we confess our sins together. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Father, we confess that we are not at all immune to idols, and we ask your forgiveness for thinking that we could not have any in our hearts or homes or church. Father, we also confess that idols are frequently the sorts of things that seem respectable and good and therefore are very difficult to actually see. So we confess that we need your spirit to open our eyes to see the idols in our lives, the idols we have made peace with. Father, forgive us for bowing to the idol of respectability instead of telling the truth about sin in our families or to our friends or in the workplace or at school or instead of confessing our own sins for fear of the repercussions, or for simply hiding or downplaying the fact that we are followers of Jesus. Father, forgive us for being quiet about the truth because that could be costly at work, or threaten our promotion, or have serious material or financial consequences. Father, forgive us for our petty idolatries that obsess in ungodly ways over what people think about us, or friendships, or our children, or clothing, or hair, or games, or food, or sex. Father, we ask you to set us free of these idols and whatever else we have fashioned that keeps us enslaved to fear and guilt and shame. Help us to see clearly so that we might confess our sins, so that we might give thanks and rejoice in all of your good gifts and so that we may worship you alone. Father, we know that if we regard any sin in our lives, this prayer will be ineffectual. And so we confess our own individual sins to you now. Selah. Father, we ask all this in the good name of Jesus, and amen. Please rise for the assurance of pardon. Proverbs 1.33 says, But whoever listens to me will dwell safely and will be secure without fear of evil. You have confessed your sins honestly and humbly before the Lord, so it's my privilege to declare to you that your sins are forgiven through Christ. Thanks be to God. The text this morning is from Psalm 109. These are the words of God. Hold not thy peace, O God of my praise, for the mouth of the wicked and the mouth of the, of the deceitful are opened against me. They have spoken against me with a lying tongue. They compassed me about also with words of hatred and fought against me without a cause. For my love, they are my ad adversaries, but I give myself unto prayer. And they have rewarded me evil for good and hatred for my love. Set thou a wicked man over him, and let Satan stand at his right hand. When he shall be judged, let him be condemned, and let his prayer become sin. Let his days be few, and let another take his office. Let his children be fatherless, and his wife a widow. Let his children be continually vagabonds and beg. Let them seek their bread also out of their desolate places. Let the extortioner catch all that he hath, and let the stranger spoil his labor. Let there be none to extend mercy unto him, let the, neither let there be any to favor his fatherless children. Let his posterity be cut off, and in the generation following, let their name be blotted out. Let the iniquity of his fathers be remembered with the Lord, and let not the sin of his mother be blotted out. Let them be before the Lord continually, that he may cut off the memory of them from the earth. Because, he, uh, because that he remembered not to show mercy, but, per, but persecuted the poor and needy man, that he might even slay the broken in heart. As he loved cursing, so let it come unto him. As he delighted not in blessing, so let it be far from him. As he clothed himself with cursing like as with a, his garment, let it come into his bowels like water and like oil into his bones. Let it be unto him as the garment which covereth him, and for a girdle wherewith he is girded continually. Let this be the reward of mine adversaries from the Lord, and of them that speak evil against my soul. 
But do thou for me, O God, the Lord, for thy name's sake, because thy mercy is good. Deliver thou me, for I am poor and needy, and my heart is wounded within me. I am gone like the shadow when it declineth. I am tossed up and down as the locust. My knees are weak through fasting, and my flesh faileth of fatness. I became also a reproach unto them. When they looked upon me, they shake their heads. Help me, O Lord my God. O save me according to thy mercy, that they may know that this is thy hand, that thou, Lord, hast done it. Let them curse, but bless thou. When they arise, let them be ashamed, but let thy servant rejoice. Let mine adversaries be clothed with shame, and let them cover themselves with their own confusion, as with a mantle. I will greatly praise the Lord with my mouth, yea, I will praise him among the multitude. For he shall stand at the right hand of the poor, to save him from those that condemn his soul. Our Father and God, we thank you for your word. I pray that your Holy Spirit would be present with us this morning. Make it a blessing to us. Help us to understand how you would have us apply it. We pray in the name of Jesus, and amen. So we come now to Psalm 109. This psalm has been a challenge for many years, actually for a number of centuries, to Christians for, uh, for, for quite some time. It is an imprecatory psalm, as you may have noticed, and it is of the most bracing variety of imprecatory psalm. Uh, there are 150 psalms. A number of them are imprecatory psalms, that is, psalms that are praying for judgment or cursing or God's uh, uh, dealing of justice with the enemies of God. And so there's that class of psalms, and, and they have been a problem to a number of Christians. How is that consistent with the Sermon on the Mount and so on? Um, and then this psalm is probably the most, uh, well, I said bracing. It's the, it's, it's the archetypical imprecatory psalm. This is the psalm where David uncorks, and we're going, and we're going to uh, deal with that. We want to be Christians who submit ourselves to the Scriptures, but we want to understand what we're submitting to, and we want to understand it rightly. Many commentators have been reduced to saying something like, well, we know it's inspired, but we don't have to like it. So yes, technically, I'll, t I'll check that box. Yes, it's in the Bible. We'll let it stay in the Bible, but we, we should be in a pother about it. The great C.S. Lewis stumbled over it, saying that God put it in Scripture so that we might have an example, an inspired, exa an inspired example of how not to behave. <laughs> now, Christians, I put that in the Bible so you won't try this at home. And even Charles Spurgeon said that the psalm represented, quote, no small difficulty, and that, quote, we have need of all our faith and reverence to accept them, uh, these curses, as the voice of inspiration. This psalm, he says, tests our teachableness, and so it does. I want to point out at the beginning that there are two opposite errors that we can fall into with regard to psalms like this two opposite errors. One is the more common one. We, we live in a generation where many people, uh, even many Christians, believe that the Scriptures were inspired by a God who is more or less a buttercup, right? Uh, God is uh, wanting uh, up in heaven, thinking of us in terms of kittens and pussy willows and, all, and nice things and polite things and everything is just so. But anybody who confesses the sovereignty of God over this whole world and all the gnarly things that happen in it, anybody who says that God is over this world and paying attention, which every Orthodox Christian has to confess, has to confess that there are places and times where God plays hardball. Right, we, have, we, we can't be faithful to the facts of Scripture or to the facts of your evening news without recognizing this. So, on the one hand, you have all the people who are, um, who, who have a false notion of the God of niceness or the God of politeness. The other problem is uh, the, the people who read Psalms like this, Psalms of imprecation, and they say something like, uh, at last, something that will justify my episodes of road rage. So um, th they get upset with anybody who drives more slowly ahead of them in traffic, and then they start breathing fire, um, thunder, lightning, and blue ruin at the slow motorist ahead of them. And that's not right 
either. It's in Luke chapter 9. You remember that episode where uh, they're going to Jerusalem and the Samaritans won't put them up. They, there's a village where uh, the Samaritans, because they're going to Jerusalem, uh, won't put them up. And the disciples say to Jesus, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to consume them? Uh, like Elijah did. You remember that episode where Elijah may fire come down and consume you and your 50 and you and your 50. It was in the Bible. Elijah did do that. But Jesus turned and rebuked his disciples and said, you don't know what spirit you are of. You don't, you're, you're, you're praying for something that's in the Bible, sure enough, but you've got, you've picked it up by the wrong end. You've picked it up the wrong way. So we don't want any justification for our personal episodes of, uh, you know, fits of wrath, fits of anger. We don't want any justification for our personal pettiness, justifying uh, road rage, uh, that sort of thing. And we don't want any uh, court, give any quarter to our, their, that our idea that Jesus is somehow the original hippie. He came preaching a simple message of love and peace, telling the Romans to peace out, and then the Apostle Paul came and messed everything up. That's not biblical either. So how, how are we to understand this psalm? Let's summarize the text first. The psalmist begins by asking God to not hold his peace. Don't hold your peace, God, he says to God, verse 1. And the reason given is that the wicked are not holding their peace. The wicked are not being quiet. God, why are you being silent when the wicked are not being silent? They are speaking. They are telling their lies. They are active in telling their lies. God, why are you being silent? So, God, don't be silent, verse 1. The wicked are not being silent, verse 2. For no good reason, they surrounded David with words of hatred, verse 3. David had not done them any wrong. For no good reason, they surrounded him with words of hatred. They turned David's love into their grievance, and as a consequence, David gives himself to prayer, verse 4. That's important. An imprecatory psalm is not the Christian equivalent of a voodoo doll where you get the little image of your enemy and stick pins in it. Uh, you're not doing magic. You're not tormenting your enemy by means of magic. What you're doing is you're saying, I'm not qualified to address this. These people have hurt me grievously, and I'm going to turn to you, and I'm going to turn it over to you. I'm going to present my requests to you. I'm going to give you my petitions. This is what I think needs to be done, but I'm turning it over to you. David gives himself to prayer in verse 4. They returned evil for good, and they returned hatred for love, verse 5. This ends the first section of the psalm, which is the statement of David's dilemma. What set this whole problem up? What set the problem up was treachery. What set the problem up was double dealing, was, was double cross. So David's friends, people that David had done good to, had betrayed him. They turned on him. They, they returned hatred for love. They, they returned ingratitude for kindness and so on. And so David turns to the Lord, and he turns the whole thing over to God. And in turning it over to God, he doesn't get on his knees, or he doesn't assume a posture of prayer, and then tell God what he thinks God would like to hear. What he does is he tells God exactly what he thinks. He, t he just pours it out. David uncorks. And the next section come, and, and in this next section, the second section of this psalm, we find some of the fiercest words in all of Scripture. This really is fierce. Let the accuser be at his right hand, and let Herod have a Herod to rule over him. Let Stalin have a Stalin to rule over him. These evil men, let them experience what they are dishing out. Let them eat their own cooking. Let them sleep in their own bed. They are, they've been a Herod to others. Let them be subjected to a Herod. Verse 6, when he, when he comes to judgment, let the, let the verdict come back as guilty. When he prays, let even that prayer be a sin. Now that, that's quite a curse, right? If my enemy turns to you and prays, let even that prayer be a sin. Let even that prayer be a new offense. Verse 7, cut his day short and let another take his position. Cut his day short, let another take his position. Now, significantly, we're going to return to this shortly, but significantly, this verse, let, let his office another take, is the verse that was quoted when the apostles replaced Judas Iscariot in Acts 1.20. 
So this is not an embarrassing corner of the Old Testament that all the New Testament writers agreed not to pay any attention to or agreed to read over quickly. They quoted it. When Judas Iscariot betrayed Jesus, remember, this is a psalm that is a response to what? It's a response to a betrayal. So when Judas needs to be replaced among the apostles. They quote this psalm, and they quote the imprecatory section of this imprecatory psalm. That's significant. We're going to come back to that. Let his children be fatherless, and his wife a widow. Verse 9. May those children be turned out into the street, hunting for scraps in waste places, verse 10, and from waste places. May an extortioner take everything, and may strangers pillage him, verse 11. May no one show mercy, whether to him or to his children, verse 12. Also, remember, it's going to say this explicitly, but remember, he's saying, let no one show mercy, because this is a man who hated mercy. This is a man who hated mercy, so let him see, let him experience what it's like to live in a world without mercy. Cut his posterity off, Lord, verse 13. May the Lord remember the sins of his fathers and also the sin of his mother, verse 14. So this is quite something. He prays, he prays at the traitor, and then he prays downstream, let no one take care of his children, and then he prays upstream, let the sin of his father, let the sin of his mother be remembered. May God remember them all such that he cuts off their memory from earth, verse 15. And why? Because he was merciless, verse 16. Now, this is not an exercise in a lack of self-awareness on the part of the psalmist. Uh, this is not the psalmist being merciless. This is the response to that, the, the one who is merciless. The evil man loved to curse, and so may it all return upon him. May your curses come back like a boomerang, verse 17. He wore clothing, died in venom, and may that venom sink down into his own bones, verse 18. May he be covered with a garment like that, verse 19. Let this be the return that my adversaries receive from the Lord, verse 20. This is the conclusion of the second section of the psalm, the imprecatory section. There are some allusions to it in the third section, but this is the, uh, the hot section of the psalm. The third section is a plea for deliverance. Remember that David is still in trouble because of this treachery. David is in trouble because of the treachery, and so he's praying for deliverance in verse 21. For the sake of the Lord's name, for David is poor and needy, and his heart is wounded. Verse 22, uh, C.S. Lewis says somewhere that, that anger is what bleeds when, when, you, when you cut love. Anger is the blood. A anger is what happens when you, when you wound love. He dwindles like a declining shadow. He is tossed like a locust in a stiff breeze. Verse 23, don't think in this, don't think of David as a king on a throne, showing no mercy to someone standing in judgment before him. Think of David as chained to a dungeon wall. He is, he is the victim. He is the one who's being persecuted. He's the one that's helpless. He, um, and, and so he's calling out to God in this adversity. His knees are weak because of fasting, and it's a fast most likely forced on him through his adversity. Verse 24. He was a reproach to his foes. They shook their heads at him. Verse 25, he pleads for God to save him according to God's mercy. Verse 26, he wants his foes to know that God undertook for him. Verse 27, he not only wants to be delivered from these people, he wants them to know that it was God who delivered him from them. He wants God to rise up, scatter his enemies. If God blesses, then let them curse all they want. If God blesses him, then let them curse. Their curses are going to redound on them. They're going to bounce back onto them, and God is blessing David. Let them be ashamed when David rejoices, verse 28. May his enemies be wrapped up in confusions, verse 29. The psalmist will praise God with his mouth in the midst of the multitude, verse 30. For God will stand at the right hand of the poor in order to deliver him from those who condemn his soul. Verse 31. So, what are we to make of this? What are we to do with this? Um, if, you're, if you encourage people to read their Bibles, 
oftentimes they're going to have the experience of, you know, what? That's in the Bible? That's in the Bible? I thought this was a holy book. You know, I, what, what are you doing to me, Mom? Why did you tell me to read my Bible? I should, um, I should tell a story from many, many years ago. Uh, one time, Becca, when she was a very little girl, uh, was having kind of a blue day, and it was just a hard day, and Nancy encouraged her to go back to her room and just read her Bible for a little bit. And so she went back to her bedroom and was reading her Bible, and then a little bit later, a voice came from the bedroom, Mom, where's that place where the fat king was stabbed and the sword went in and the fat covered up the sword? <laughs> Nothing like a little cheery passage to cheer you up. So we're, what, do you do, what do you do with angular parts of the Bible like this? What, what are we supposed to do with it? Well, we're, we're, the first thing that you must not do with it is you must not be dishonest with it. You must not pretend that it's saying something other than what it's saying. God wants honesty from us. We want to read the Bible honestly. We want to confront angular texts for what they are. We don't want to pretend. We don't want to live in a land of make-believe. And we, we also want to deal with the fact that in the New Testament, we are told to sing this. When the meditation was sung this morning, they were singing Psalm 109. 2,000 years after Christ ascended into heaven, we are still singing the words that were written a thousand years before that, and we're, we're called to sing these, these words uh, along with the other words of the Psalms. To the end of the world, the Christian church is supposed to sing this stuff. In Ephesians 5.19, Colossians 3.16, we are to sing with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. We're to sing the whole Psalter. The, in, in the Greek Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, there are three categories. There are three categories of the psalms, and the words that are used for those three categories in the Septuagint are the words for uh, psalms, hymns, psalms, and spiritual songs. We're to sing the whole Psalter. We're to sing the Word of God back to Him. But we know we know that we're not supposed to sing our bad attitudes back to the Lord. We're not supposed to be in a blue funk. We're not supposed to have, be grumbling. We're not supposed to be complaining. We're not supposed to be full of malice and pray that malice back to God. That's not, that's not right. And Peter, this is the other thing. I alluded to this already. Peter was not shy about applying the imprecatory section of this psalm to the desola desolation that Judas brought down upon himself in Acts 1.20. And this means that if the antagonist in the psalm was Judas, and that is who the antagonist is, if the antagonist in this psalm prophetically is Judas, then the protagonist must be Christ. If the antagonist is Judas, then the, then the protagonist must be Christ. Notice this, and they, and they that passed by reviled him, wagging their heads in Matthew 27, 39. When Jesus was hanging on the cross, those who had twisted justice out of all recognition, those who had conducted an illegal trial in the middle of the night, those who had uh, admitted all kinds of false witnesses, those who had run that kangaroo trial, gotten Jesus hung on a gibbet, and they go by wagging their heads at him. Matthew 27, 39. What does is, what is Psalm 109, verse 25 said? I became also a reproach unto them. When they looked upon me, they shaked their heads. So, they, so what's happening here is this psalm is a prophetic um, statement of the Lord Jesus being betrayed by Judas, being turned over to the elders, the leaders of the Jews, being betrayed by them, being betrayed by Pilate and Herod, the political uh, uh, rulers who were not following their own accepted order. Pilate, for example, knew that Jesus was innocent. Pilate knew that he was a righteous man. God sent a dream to Pilate's wife. She sent a message to Pilate saying, don't don't. Whatever you do, don't. And Pilate went ahead because he didn't, want to, he didn't want to condemn Jesus, but he wanted to condemn Jesus more than he wanted a rioting crowd. So Pilate caved. Herod didn't get the magic trick that he wanted, so he, was, he sent Jesus back. The Sanhedrin betrayed their law, betrayed their scriptures, betrayed their Messiah. The Christ of Israel, the Messiah of Israel came and all the established authorities of Israel 
betrayed him. There were a handful that did not. Nicodemus was in the Sanhedrin. He did not. Joseph of Arimathea did not. He had the tomb where Jesus was buried. There were, there were people who loved Jesus, responded to Jesus rightly, but they weren't running the show. Jerusalem betrayed Jesus. And at the center of this rat's nest of betrayal, at the center of this rat's nest of treachery, we find Judas. So this is Christ. This psalm is about Christ in his humiliation on our behalf. David had his troubles. David had his troubles, but they were serving as a type. David is speaking by inspiration of the Spirit, and he's speaking about his own troubles, but he's speaking about much more than that. This is really about Christ. When prophets did what they did in the Old Testament, they often spoke in the terminology and the vocabulary of their own situation, their own time, and their own day. But there, the whole circumstance is not just the prophets, uh, the, it's not just where you have a prophet standing up and saying, I'm about to prophesy, and the words that I say are a prophecy of the coming Messiah. The whole situation was a prophecy of the coming Messiah. And the Old Testament saints knew this. It's not something that they were ignorant of. They knew, that God, they, uh, they knew that God functioned not only in terms of predictive words, but they also knew that God ordered history in such a way as to telegraph what he was going to do. God set up the whole situation. This situation, whatever the betrayal was that David was talking about, that was a betrayal that was a type of the betrayal of Christ. So when we talk about a prediction, a, an overt prophecy, a virgin will conceive, like Isaiah says, a virgin will conceive and bear a son and you'll call his name Emmanuel. That's a propositional uh, uh, prediction. So that's the prophecy. And then when Jesus is born of a virgin, that's the fulfillment. When the, when the prophecy is a three-dimensional enactment, when the prophecy is a three-dimensional enactment, that's called a type. And then the fulfillment is the antitype. The fulfillment is the antitype. So the flood, Noah's flood, is a type, and Christian baptism, we're told by Peter, is an antitype. Hera and, uh, uh, Hagar and Sarah were a type of two covenants, and Galatians tells us that uh, two ways of approaching God, law righteousness and faith righteousness, are the antitype. In, in that day. So what we have here in Psalm 109 is a, a type of the crucifixion of Jesus. Now, Christ responded to his adversaries, Christ responded to his enemies in two stages and in two different ways. He was like a sheep before his shearers, before the shearers, answering not a word. We see that in Isaiah 53 verse 7. Jesus didn't defend himself at his illegal trial. Jesus did not defend himself at his illegal trial. He didn't answer a word, just as Isaiah had predicted. In the second, the second stage that is, he was the one who destroyed his enemies with the breath of his coming, 2 Thessalonians 2.8. We want to reverse that order. That's the Luke 9.55, it's the passage I mentioned earlier. The pattern that God gives us is exile and return. It's death and then resurrection. It is first the cross, then the crown. We want to reverse it, and we want the crown, and then maybe an optional cross later. The old blues song says, everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. Right? We want the order reversed. We want to go straight to glory. We want the crown first. We don't want the cross. We, we want the vindication. We want the deliverance first and not the trial, not the affliction. The Lord went through this affliction. The Lord went through this horrendous experience so that the one who destroys them with the breath of his coming, that the Lord who does that is the one who died for the sins of the world. All right, he's, he's not the person in slow traffic being irritated by the slow traffic in front of him. He's not the, he's not the disciples who are denied a bed to rest in in that Samaritan village and then confounded their, their, the issues of their own personal convenience with the righteousness of God. He didn't mix that up. 
So Jesus, the, the one who is going to judge the world, the one who is going to come down and judge every act of unrighteousness, the one who is going to deal with all of the sins of the world, is the one who died on the cross for the sins of all his people. The sins that he will judge are sins he died for. There will not be one thing, there, there, will be, there, there will not be one sinner cast into hell for any sin where that sin that he committed is a sin that Jesus died for someone, somewhere, somehow. That, the issue is not the sin because Christ gave himself up for sinners. So we, we must not reverse the order. The disciples reversed the order. They wanted to have God judge on the basis of their own personal uh, convenience, we must not think that way. When we recoil from the words of this psalm, it is because we've reversed the common order. We've reversed the, the biblical order. The biblical order is sacrifice and then vindication. And judgment, make no mistake, the judgment is part of that vindication. But vindication has to come with resurrection, and you can't have resurrection unless you've laid down your life. If you've laid down your life, if you've laid down your life, if you've surrendered it all, if you've taken up your cross and you're following Christ, having taken up your cross, then you may think about, then you may think about praying the way David prays here, but not until then. And then you say, oh, good, that way I don't have to pray that way and I don't have to take up my cross. No, Jesus requires us all to take up our cross daily. He says, I want you to pray this way. I want you to grow up into this. I want you to learn this. But the way to learn it is through. We have to go through the path that we have to go through the path that God calls us to go through. So we are invited to turn it all over to God. Psalms of imprecation are a surrender to the judge of the whole earth. We know that the judge of the whole earth will do right as Abraham says to God in the book of Genesis. And we know that he will do right because of the meekness he displayed in the course of his passion. We can trust him with this. The one who didn't answer a word, the almighty God, the, think about this, almighty God takes, the, takes on, uh, on human flesh. Emmanuel, God with us, the son of David is the son of God. According to the flesh, he's the son of David. According to the spirit, he is the son of God. Almighty God let sinners spit in his face. Almighty God let sinners pluck out his beard, as it says in Isaiah. Almighty God let the Romans flog him. Almighty God let them taunt him. Almighty God was able to be uh, was on the cross looking at these arrogant, uh, arrogant little bugs, insects, you know, sh walking by, shaking their heads, hey, neener, 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 you know, that's the, that's the level of their response to him. He was pure, perfect, holy, righteous, and good, and he's almighty God, and he lets them, he just accepts it. He accepts it. He, just like David turns the prayer over to God, so Jesus turns the whole outcome of his passion over to God. And he does this to the point of death. And he cries out, it is finished. And he gives up his spirit. He surrenders his spirit. He lays down his life. And when the time was fully, uh, when the time was fulfilled, he took it up again. He, ro he rose from the dead. Now, when justice comes from such a one as that, at the point of judgment, as the Bible says this rep repeatedly, at the point of judgment, every mouth will be stopped. When God judges, there will be no comebacks. There will be no arguments because the one who is judging the world is the one who died for the sins of the world. So we know that Jesus is going to do right because of the way he behaved when he was railroaded. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do is the foundation stone. That's the cornerstone. That's the foundation stone. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Imprecations may only be safely settled on that kind of a foundation, which is ultimately Christ himself. Now, this is the issue. God is not mocked. God is not mocked. We sometimes complain about this psalm 
Even, even if the judgment comes from a resurrected Christ, a resurrected Christ who suffered silently in the face of terrible abuse, we still, com we still have a problem. We complain about Psalms like this on the grounds of injustice. But what really troubles us is the sheer justice of God's judgments. God's judgments trouble us because they are just. We have quietly and surreptitiously switched the categories of mercy and justice. We somehow think that mercy is owed to us and that if we don't get it, then, some, then that is somehow unjust. We think I deserve mercy, but mercy deserved is not mercy. Grace deserved is not grace. If we earned grace, it wouldn't be grace. If you earned your birthday present, it's not a birthday present. If you earn your Christmas presents, they're not Christmas presents. It's only grace, it's only a gift, it's only a sheer, it's only sheer grace if it has nothing to do with merit, nothing to do with what you deserve or don't deserve. So, grace that is owed is no grace at all. So the wages of sin, it says in Romans, the wages of sin is death, and the gift of God is eternal life. That's in Romans 3.23. The wages of sin is death, the gift of God is eternal life. Notice here that death is a paycheck, death is the wage, death is what we have earned. Death is the paycheck. There is an asymmetry between death and life that extends beyond the categories of death and life. There's also the asymmetry of wage and gift. The wages of sin is death, the gift of God is eternal life. It's not just the contrast between death and life. It's also the contrast between wage and gift. It doesn't say the gift of God is death and the gift of God is life. It doesn't say the wages of sin is death and the wages of righteousness is life. It says, on the one hand, it's a paycheck that ends in death. On the other hand, it's a gift that ends in life. Anyone who is lost, anyone who is lost, anyone who is shut out into the outer darkness, anyone who does not know God, anyone who is not in everlasting bliss is receiving nothing other than a paycheck. And it's going to be a paycheck that's accurate down to the last penny. So there's an asymmetry. Uh, we, we are, you are not here saved because of how good-looking you are. You're not here saved because you're a, a, a middle-class, respectable person who takes showers every day. You're not here because you dress up real nice. You're not here because you're a good person. You are here because you're a bad person. You can't be a Christian. You can't go to heaven. You can't be right with God unless you're evil. All right? You say, well, that sounds bad, right? Well, no, it, does. it ruffles our feathers, but that, that be, that's where it all starts. God says to you, are you wicked? Are you evil? Are you self-absorbed? Are you vain? Are you conceited? Are you proud? Are you grasping? Do you love your own opinions? God asks you that question. And if you say, no, 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 I'm not nearly, I, I'm not nearly that bad. We want God to judge, grade us on a curve right? We want God to, we want to say, well, I'm, I'm not perfect. I'm only human, but I'm better than so-and-so and I'm better than so-and-so. We're looking up and down the line. We, we look up and down and say, I'm, I'm better than a lot of people. I'm better than a lot of people. God didn't ask you that. God doesn't have you come up before his great white throne and say, are you better than a lot of people? <laughs> you should be so lucky. He, did, he said, are you vain? Are you proud? Are you conceited? Are you self-centered? Did you love me with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Everyone who says, no, I did not, and they say, no, I am, I am not righteous, and they say that in repentance, that is a gift of God. That repentance is a gift of God. And then salvation is given. The person who acknowledges, I'm about to receive a gift that I did not earn because I'm vain, conceited, proud, self-centered. All of that is true. So I have not only have I not earned the gift, I have forfeited that gift. God, would you give it to me anyway? Would you give it to me anyway because Jesus was perfect? Would you give it to me anyway because Jesus died on the cross? Jesus was buried in a cold tomb and Jesus rose from the dead. So God is not mocked. 
A man reaps what he sows, as it says in Galatians 6, 7, and 8. If you plant thistles, you're going to harvest thistles. If you sow cursing, then your crop in the fall is going to be cursing and your barns are going to be full of it. If that's what you're plowing and planting, if that's what you farm, then you can't be surprised at the harvest. Are you a complainer? Then don't, then if that's what you're sowing in the dirt, then don't be surprised when your barns are full of grumbles, when your barns are full of complaining. Are you, are you self-absorbed, self-centered? Do you, do you feel sorry for yourself all the time? Are you a, a self-pity farmer? Then don't be surprised that your barns are full of it. Are, are you full of lust? Are you consumed with lust? Then don't be surprised when it comes back to you. God is not mocked. Of course, this is not talking about salvation. We're not saying that you work really hard and then you earn your salvation. It says in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, lest anyone should boast. We are not saved by our works, but we are most certainly damned by them. We are not saved by our works, but we are most certainly damned by our works. God will judge every man according to his works, the Bible says. But then that's where the glorious asymmetry comes in, right? The wages of sin is death. Damnation comes because you earn it. You earn it, and it's, not, it's, it's an accurate payment. God's accountants are good. So when you earn damnation, that's the, just straight up. And then you look over here, the gift of God is eternal life. The gift of God is Christ. The gift of God is the Lord Jesus. So, never forget the stark difference between law righteousness, trying to be good, pedal harder, I'm a good little Christian, I'm a good little boy, I'm a good little girl. That's law righteousness and faith righteousness. The former is damned by works, while the latter is saved by grace. In addition to all of that, remember the fact that justification is by grace through faith alone. But this does not abrogate the principle that God is not mocked with regard to your sanctification. You can be a forgiven Christian, and if you get hit by a bus, you're going to go to heaven. That can all be true because you're saved by grace apart from works of the law. And yet, you're, you can be planting and, and harvesting the wrong things in your life. You can, you can be saved and justified and going to heaven when you die and still wreck your marriage. You can, you can be a saved person and still mess things up with your kids. You can be a saved person and run your business into the ground. You can do that by ignoring what God says to do, because God is not mocked, a man reaps what he sows. So let us assume that a man is a converted man by grace through faith. And now consider two other realities of the Christian life, the blessings that come from obedience and the obedience itself. These are joined together in Christ and only in Christ. The temptation to separate them by various means is always the attempt to obtain the blessings of obedience without the obedience itself. The name of this sin is, at the foundation, sorcery. Sorcery is the desire to get the blessings of obedience without actually having to obey. Why do, we say, why do I say that? 1 Samuel 15 says, for rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is as iniquity and, and idolatry. Because thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, he hath also rejected thee from being king. Rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. Witchcraft is simply, a, uh, it's an attempt to have uh, hack the way the world is. You're trying to take shortcuts. You want to get a payout. You want to get a reward. You want to get the blessings of obedience without actually having to obey. Remember, the beginning, middle, and end of all of this is Jesus Christ. All of it is about Jesus Christ. Judas betrayed Jesus. Ju Judas turned away from his only possible salvation. Judas walked away from God's mercy that was presented to him. He was given a, a position of enormous privilege, and he turned away and he sold it for 30 pieces of silver. You have been given a position of enormous privilege. You are here with Christ. You are here with Christ's people. You're here part of the body of Christ. You've been, been given an enormous mercy in that you are present here with the Lord Jesus. Do not turn away from him. 
Do not walk away from him. Do not betray him. Do not be treacherous. Our Father in God, we thank you for your word. I pray that you'd help us internalize it. I pray that you'd help us understand it better than we do. I pray that you would establish, establish us in that word, root us deeply in it. Jesus gave us this meal and said, do this in remembrance of me. So it's no accident that we celebrate the Lord's Supper on the Lord's Day, the Christian Sabbath. The fourth commandment begins with the command to remember the Sabbath day, to remember that God created the world in six days and rested on the seventh, to remember that Israel had been slaves in Egypt and God brought them out. And so here at this table, Jesus renews the fourth commandment, having remade the world, having brought us out of the greater Egypt of sin and death. And so we celebrate this meal, remembering the new creation, the new exodus, the new covenant, accomplished by, Je by Jesus in his death and resurrection. We remember the Sabbath rest that Jesus won for us here in our worship and in our homes as we rest and we rejoice in him. But all of this underlines a broader Christian habit that Jesus is teaching us here, the habit of remembering and giving thanks. At the center, we remember Jesus and we give thanks for him. But we are also celebrating this meal thousands of years into the history of the world, 2,000 years into the reign of Christ, and so we have so much to remember and give thanks for. One of the natural results of this kind of Christian remembering is learning loyalty to our people. Loyalty to Jesus is central and overall, but we can't help but remember the many generations that have come before us who have also remembered him. They remembered Christ, and they taught their children to remember him too. And then those children taught their children, and their grandchildren became our great-grandparents. And so we remember. For some of us, this is literally true, and what a great gift that is. But in our modern individualism, so many of us don't even know much about our families, or the little we know can be pretty distressing. But let this meal teach you to begin remembering again, to knit you closer to your people, past, present, and future, and let it teach you to remember that part of the grace of this table is the fact that here, all of us have been adopted into a new family in Christ. And so now you have family, like the stars of the heavens, a family beyond all reckoning. So come and remember, and come and welcome to Jesus Christ. A psalm like the one that we've considered this morning should be great comfort to you. In a room like this, in a, in a crowd this big, terrible things happen in this world. Horrible things happen. And one of the things this psalm invites us to do is to surrender those horrible things to the God, to the God who loves us, to the God who cares for us. And this is a psalm that gives you permission to do that. So bring it all to him, lay it all before him, but then leave it there. Leave it there, trust him with it, because he's better at justice than you are. So let him carry it for you, let him take it for you, because he went all the way down into the darkness of the cross for you, he experienced shame and betrayal for you, so he can be trusted to do what is right with those hard things. Surrender it to him, give it to him, tell him about it, and then leave it there and trust him with it all. Now our Lord Jesus Christ himself, and God, even our Father, who hath loved us and hath given us everlasting consolation and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. And amen. amen.